0: This afternoon, I had a vision. <laughs> it's good to see you tonight in the service, and uh, I pray that the Lord's giving you a good afternoon. It's been a wonderful time for me of fellowship, brother Bill, and with brother John. Uh, these times are refreshing; they're like oases in the desert. I love to come to Piney Hikes. I like to be around folks that are just, as I said this morning, what they are. And uh, I, I pray that God will continue to bless you, and I covet your prayers. I ask you to remember us as we go from place to place, and that the Lord will give us grace and strength, and most of all, His blessed power and spirit, that we proclaim the Word of God effectively for the Lord Jesus. I guess I say this every year that rolls round. But and yet again, it is absolutely true. We are closer and nearer now to the return of our Lord than we ever have been. And I believe if we only knew how near, uh, I think it would just spur all of us on. And I believe we'd do far more than we've ever thought we could do uh, for the Savior uh, as children of God. Now, this morning, I tried to preach a short sermon, but I didn't have much luck. Uh, I said one time, uh, my wife's with me in a service and I preached one of those old long-winded sermons and I got in the car and started home and I said, you know, I'll declare, I just couldn't find a stopping place and I'd saved my life. And she said, that's funny, I found about three or four good places you could have stopped and so you may have found a few this morning, uh, but I'll, I'll try to do better tonight. I've kind of made light of some of these modern-day miracle workers. And, uh, brother, your pastor and I, uh, we talk so much on the phone and share tales. Uh, I don't know. You may have heard everything I've ever had to say or going to say. Uh, but anyway, uh, well, when I, when I started wearing my glasses, you know what my wife said to me? I started wearing my glasses. She said, you know who you look like? And I said, no. She said, Bill Reese. I said, I want a divorce. Well, <laughs> all I need a little hair now, and uh, I'll have it made. Amen. <laughs> all right. But I tell you, I'm glad there's something real, folks, and I'm glad we serve a real Savior, and this life of living for Christ is a reality. And I'm glad it's a practical kind of life, not this kind of uh, tiptoe above the clouds and wearing the halos. Uh, I'll guarantee you uh, Christ uh, makes a man's life different in the practical aspects of life, the everyday affairs of life. And I'm glad to serve a Savior like that. Let's get to the message now. And if you will, turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I would, while you're turning there, just ask you one request for prayer. Pray for me. As you know, as the pastor mentioned this morning, uh, I have been up in the Little Mountain Church for almost eight years. And we felt under the Lord uh, that uh, really uh, the Lord would have us to just uh, cut loose the uh, harness and uh, get out on the road. And of course, if you have known me in all these uh, past eight years, I haven't really slowed down all that much. I cut my meetings down to about 30 or 35 weeks in the year while I was there. And uh, it just got to where it's just so great. Uh, physical burden, and uh, I felt after many months of prayer uh, that that's what the Lord have us do. Now, it'll make a change in a lot of respects, uh, materially and otherwise, and uh, I would just ask you to pray that the Lord might uh, uh, open the doors and keep us faithful, and I know as, as we do that, the Lord in turn will be faithful in supplying every need. I'd appreciate it if you'd mark our name on your prayer calendar and you'd pray for us as the Lord reminds you from time to time. Now Galatians chapter 6 and we'll read it verse 1 and down through verse number 5. The Bible says these words, uh, Paul considering uh, uh, what the professor might call a hypothetical case. Not a case necessarily that was existent at the moment, but surely could have been. And there were incidences where this truth uh, needed to be applied in the attitude and the actions of the children of God, even in Paul's day. And he writes these words saying at verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth, or he leads himself astray. But let every man prove his own work, put it to the test, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let's pray together. Father, open now our eyes to thy word, to the book of instruction. May, Lord, we follow the directions that thou didst give us in this passage of thy word. And Lord, as we read this instruction, we cannot help but see in the heart, in our mind's eye, and in the vision of our soul, a portrait of our Lord's attitude and our Lord's action toward those who have fallen into sin and who have been overtaken in some fault. May we be Christlike in our ways. Fill us with Thy Spirit. Honor thy word and revive our hearts in these moments. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Paul begins this word of instruction concerning an erring or a sinning brother or sister in Christ by the use of the word brethren. And very wisely, the Holy Spirit chooses this word for Paul to begin his word of instruction to us. For the word brethren reminds us of the close-knit family that we are as born-again children. For a man to be my brother, he must have the same parent or the same father. For a man to be my spiritual brother, he must as well have God as his father. We're told in the Bible that by a man receiving Jesus as his Savior, he is given authority to become a child of God. Our Lord in the third chapter of John speaks very vividly about this experience of the spiritual birth of being born into the family of God. Paul again explains it in simplest terms as to how we are made a child of God in the third chapter of this same book of Galatians and verse 26. And he says it simply, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. By a personal, individual faith in the Son of God, we become a child of the heavenly father there is no other way for a man to become a child of God other than that it doesn't happen because we join the church it doesn't happen because we turn over a new leaf it doesn't happen because we adopt a high sounding philosophy in life It doesn't happen because of some psychological trickery of positive thinking. But we become a child of God through simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that, say amen. Do you believe it? Sure. And that's what the Bible says. So Paul would remind us in the word brethren that we are members of the household of faith. And he is instructing us how we ought to act toward a misbehaving brother or sister. What are we going to do? Well, the Bible continues as Paul says, If a man be overtaken in a fault, underscore the word man. Now, though a person becomes a child of God, he is yet a man. I mean by that, he is a human being. Paul is not dealing here with our attitude and our actions toward angels. And I think it is well known by all of us that in the family of God as born again Christians there are no angels in that family. I haven't met any. One fellow said the other day however he said you know I know I must have married an angel and the fellow said how is that? Well he said my wife. Why she must be an angel. She's always up in the air about something and a harping on something and complaining that she doesn't have anything to wear. She He must be an angel. Well, we're not dealing with angels. We're dealing down here below with men and women of like passion, of like like failure, of like mistakes, and like potential. So Paul said, if a man reminding us that even though we're saved, we're certainly not perfect individuals. I have never met a perfect Christian. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said Christians are not perfect. They are just forgiven. And I'm glad that's the way it is. And we're not perfect, but someday we will be like our Lord Jesus. But while we're here on this side of the grave and this side of that change, we're dealing with imperfect men and women. Now because of that and because if you're honest and have observed and known yourself you will not find it such a great shock and a great surprise when you discover fault or wrong in the life of another child of God. So Paul said if a man be overtaken in a fault. Let me add this other word. I was listening to a preacher the other day up home on the radio. Our mountain preachers have a different way of doing it than most anybody else. Uh, uh, they, uh, I don't know, they kind of bark when they preach. You ever heard that kind? For God uh, so loved the world uh, that he gave his only begotten son. Have any of y'all ever heard that kind? And uh, we call them a home barking preachers. And most of them never get anything treated anyhow, but uh, they they got a certain style. And I was listening to this fellow the other day, and man, I was going to it. I don't care how a fellow says it just so he says what's right. I don't care if he says, huh. I don't care if he gasped for breath, uh, I just, I want to know what he's saying most of all, and this fella was really giving it straight, and I was in the cold truck just a holler amen, boy, go to it, I believe that, and all of a sudden he said, uh, he said, when you get saved, huh, I'll tell you, huh, all your old nature huh, will be changed, huh. and I said, huh, huh, wait a minute, Now I said to myself, my brother, I wish that were so. I wish when I became a child of God many years ago, right over here in Barnwell, South Carolina, I wish that I had become a perfect individual. I wish that there had never been an era in my life since that day. I wish that I could tell you tonight that I'd never fail the Lord. That I had never sinned since that moment. But if I were to tell you that, I would have made my first mistake, would I not? And you know the truth about it. But Paul said, that if a man, a Christian man, and though he is and though you are saved, I want you to know though you have a new nature, the old nature that you had before you were saved is still present with you and is still as ornery and cussed and low down and trifling and rebellious against God as it ever has been. Do you understand that? You agree that? Nod your head. It may rattle, but it won't fall off, I hope. All right? You follow me? Now go another step. If a man, a Christian man undoubtedly be overtaken in a fall, the impression is this. This Christian man did not go out early one morning, and after he walks out and sees it's a beautiful day, he didn't turn to himself and say, my, boy, it's just a wonderful day to sin. Wow, what a day to be disobedient. What a wonderful day uh, to violate the Word of God and to get out of fellowship with God. Is that the attitude of a born-again Christian? Not on your life. But though he doesn't awake with that attitude, and though he doesn't necessarily run out to overtake some sin, yet I'm going to tell you, he may be overtaken by some sin himself. In some moment of lack of watchfulness. In a moment of carelessness. In a moment of failure to yield himself to the Spirit of God who resides within him. That dear man may stumble and fall into some gross error or some sin of the old nature. I remember when I was a boy growing up, I got a new suit of clothes. Didn't get many of them, and don't now. But I remember I got a little new suit of clothes, little white outfit, you know, uh, those little what they call them knickers knickers. I hated them. I never wore anything any worse in my life. If mama just left me alone in my overhauls, I'd have been perfectly happy and wouldn't have had such a war personality now. But anyway, I didn't like knickers, but I was proud of that new suit and I was going to go to church and show my buddies and I got out in the yard after mama dressed me and uh, up come a big old yellow boned hound and he jumped up on me and knocked me down and it had been raining and Uh, And the whole wasn't at the moment, and the ground was muddy, and boy, I was a mess. And I went running back in, and I said, Mama, Mama, look here, look here, what old yeller done, and look how dirty I am. And Mama took me up in her arms, and she said, Son, now don't be too upset. Mama can wash the suit, and we'll get it all clean, and everything will be all right. Oh, listen, I didn't like that. I didn't like the fact that I dirtied up that little new suit of clothes and that new outfit. But listen, when I fell and got it dirty, I didn't waller in the dirt. I got up with a broken heart and went back in to mama and wanted something done about the dirtiness of that little new outfit. That's something like the child of God Oh, he may stumble and get his get his robe dirty, and he may get all fouled up in life. But if he's really a child of God, I believe he'll get up and go weeping back to the Father and say, "Look, Father, look what's happened to me! Oh, look at the dirt and the grime and the sin of my life!" And the Father takes him in His arms and says, "That's all right, prodigal boy or girl. We'll clean it up and we'll get everything right. I'll restore you to fellowship." That's the kind of heavenly father we have. And that is the kind of attitude that a really saved man or woman has down on the inside. Now, I don't know how long he may continue in his sin and rebellion and stubbornness and pride, but if he's really saved, he'll be making tracks back to the Father before long. I believe that with my heart. And so the man is not overtaking a fault, but it is the fault that has overtaken the man. Now, the word fault indeed suggests sin. It is a word that means simply a blunder, a failure to achieve. Another word is rendered in our Bible is sin, and it is also rendered missing the mark. And that's what sin is. It is missing the mark of God's purpose. It is a fall beside the way. It is a blunder. It is a failure to achieve. And so the Lord saying, if this brother somehow is overtaken by some weakness of his own, In some fault or error and sin, then he said, You that are spiritual, you have a responsibility toward that brother or that sister in Christ. I must confess, and sadly so, that Paul now addresses a small minority in the family of God. He talks to those who are spiritual, and there are two kinds of Christians. There are those that are spiritual and there are those, uh, far too many, who are carnal. And I mean by carnal, Christian, one who is now living according to the impulses of his own nature. He has given way to those impressions and those desires of the flesh, and not yielding himself on a continuous basis to the Holy Spirit who resides within his own heart. We've got a lot of misconception about what it is to be spiritual. For example, there are some who feel that to be that that spirituality is excitement. You know that kind. In other words, nothing is spiritual unless it's up on cloud number nine. Everybody's got to be excited. Everybody's got to be climbing the wall. Everybody's got to be swinging by the chandelier. Everybody's got to be hollering glory. Everybody's got to be shouting hallelujah or it's just not spirituality. That's their impression, but that is not necessarily spirituality. Excitement can be of the flesh. Excitement can be of our own nature and not necessarily of the Spirit of God. Oh, don't misunderstand me or take that too far. I believe certainly there is spiritual excitement and there is something exciting about the fact when the presence of God, ungrieved, is moving in our hearts and our lives. There's no more exciting time to me than when an old sinner comes down, bows in the altar and tells the Lord that he's lost and ask Jesus into his heart. Now Bud you talk about excitement. That thrills me better than a, than a, a, a coon dog a chasing a coon. I'll guarantee spirituality. Again let me say this. There are some who have the idea and the impression that spirituality is exclusion of things in life. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't go here. I don't dress like that. I don't say this. I don't say that. And therefore, I've excluded all of these things from my life. And I am a spiritual man or woman. And if you've ever found that kind, you're going to find something else about them. They have an attitude of superiority. They look down on others who may be guilty of something they feel ought to be excluded from their life. And they look upon them and say, oh, sorry, rascal. He calls himself a Christian and yeah, 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 yeah. Down the line they go. Listen, my friend, that attitude in itself ought to tell you you're not spiritual. Again, then, there are those who think that spirituality is excluding something from their life. All there are things in the man's life or woman's life who is spiritual that will be excluded that are contrary to the Word of God. But I tell you, exclusion in itself is not spirituality. It is Pharisaism. The Pharisees were separatist. Period. That's what they believed in. We do not touch. We do not taste. We do not handle. We wash our hands. We keep ourselves clean. We keep the outside scrubbed. And that was their attitude. Oh, listen, surely our life ought to be outwardly circumspect. But don't confuse just an exclusive kind of attitude of mind of things and places in your life as making you a spiritual man or woman. There are a lot of Christians who think, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual because I don't go to the show and don't dance. Don't play cards. Don't do a lot of things like that. And so I'm spiritual. Ah, my friend, there's more to spirituality than mere excitement or mere exclusion. Let me say this. Are you all with me? Somebody looks like you've been hitting the head of the two before already. Are you hanging in? I don't mind you when you get to stirring, but my, when you get glassy-eyed, that worries me to death. You ever lived on a farm and met up with an old glassy-eyed Jersey bull? You ever met one of those fellows? I got in a sale barn one day and a fella dumped one of those characters out of the back end of a truck and boy, he is wild. Eyes glassed over. You know what I did? I climbed the wall. That's what I did. And I'm going to tell you, when my audience gets that way, I start looking for a wall to climb. All right, what? Spirituality, what is it? It is not excitement. It is not merely exclusion. And may I say, it is not expression. Now I mean by that this. It's not because you speak a certain way. You know, we've got some folks, they, they pick everything up from what they've heard somebody else say. It does not mean that a man's spiritual because always going around talking about the Holy Ghost this and the Holy Ghost that. doesn't mean that he's spiritual because always running around quoting Bible verses. The devil can do that. Do you know that? I wouldn't consider him very spiritual, would you? And yet again, there are a lot of folks who say, well, spirituality is just, as far as they're concerned, it's just a mode of expression. They talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, they talk about the Heavenly Father. Uh, they have a certain way. And uh, you can tell them, a lot of folks. you can tell where they're from. You can by the way they talk. I can hear a preacher on the radio and he says, baptize. I know where he's coming from. Uh, I know where he is. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. And, and, and so uh, many a person just kind of, well, what they're, what they're doing is this. They're imitators of spirituality. Uh, they're they're, they're kind of mimics. And if a fellow over here, a woman over here, they consider to be a devout Christian and a very spiritual and dedicated person, they try to make their sounds and their actions and they're all just like that. Listen, you know what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life? He wants to make out of you who you are and what you are a spiritual man or woman and you don't have to talk like anybody else. You don't have to talk like Pastor Reese. You don't have to talk like Brother Burrell. You don't have to talk like uh, John Rice or Bob Jones uh, or anybody else. Uh, The Holy Spirit wants to make out of your life what you are, a man or woman, and here's what it is to be spiritual, dedicated and surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God who resides in your heart. Paul wrote up here in the 25th verse of Galatians 5 and he said if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Again, at verse number 16 of the same chapter, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh or the desire of that old carnal side of your life. Walk, let your life be governed by the very Spirit of God and you'll do that through what I was talking about this morning, the Word of God. All right, watch again. Would you like to, would you like me to give you a photograph of a spiritual man? Would you really like to know how to identify one? Here it is. I'm going to give you about five or six words that the Bible gives that will define spirituality. In Galatians 5, verse 22, you're going to find the marks of a spiritual man or woman. Here they are. But the fruit of the Spirit. When you're talking about spirituality, you're talking about the Spirit. You're talking about what He produces in our life as we surrender to Him. Follow. but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, if a man claims to be spiritual, he says, don't do this, don't do that, don't talk like that, don't go here, don't go there, don't watch this, don't hang around that crowd, I don't do all these things, but I'll tell you right now, I hit the ground that fellow walks on. He's not spiritual. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is is an attitude of acceptance of men as to what they are in spite of what they do. And you can love an individual without necessarily liking and approving what he says or what he is or what he does. Jesus loved men. He loved human beings. He loved the woman of Samaria. And though he loved her, he did not—he did not condone nor approve her sin of immorality. Jesus certainly could not condone the life of tax text, uh, tax gatherer Zacchaeus, who was a, who was a rogue and a dishonest man and, and, and an outright sinful man. Yet he loved Zacchaeus. Do you get the point? The love. Of the spirit will be evident in the spiritual man's life. And then not only that. But joy. I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm just talking about joy. That means an air of happiness or joy deep settled in the heart. In spite of what kind of circumstance going on all around. There is a joy that has a deep wellspring. And then not only that but peace. A tranquil life. A calmness inside. In, in fact, when it seems all oh, the world's caving in. The home's blowing apart. The community's blowing apart. The world's in turmoil. Yet there's a calmness inside. Storm's all about. But the peace Jesus said, I give to you is the kind of peace he had when He's laying down there in that ship asleep. And the poor disciples up on top aboard the ship wringing their hands and saying, Lord, we're going to perish. Lord, help us. That calmness. Holy Spirit gives that. In other words, we have an assurance that He can handle any situation that you're ever confronted with in life. Not only calmness, but watch this portrait. But long-suffering. Oh, how quick we are to judge men. How quick we are to condemn. And how quick we are to cut men off when they just don't do like we want them to do or act like we want them to act. Yet we fail in letting the Spirit produce long-suffering. And that word means exactly what it says. Suffering long with men and women. Not only that, and that may apply to the length of the preacher's sermon. Long suffering. All right, watch again. Gentleness. We live in a harsh world. We live in a world where men have forgotten how to be gentle. Uh, we, If somebody bites us, we're going to bite them. If they hurt us, we're going to hurt them. But Jesus had a gentleness about him. And in all the things you're reading right here in this verse, and I'm talking about his portrait of a spiritual man. Are you reminded of one other individual in the Bible that this portrait can apply to perfectly? Is it not a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Surely the one who had absolute love. Who had the deepest joy in spite of the suffering evil of the cross. There was joy. He despised the shame of it. But there was joy in, in his heart for that that would result from the cross. And then honor that. But he mentions goodness. Just simple goodness in life. And then faith which is simply faithfulness. And a spiritual man is faithful. I see these kind of cloud nine kind of people walking around every once in a while I go to revival meeting. And I say to the preacher, boy, that fellow must really love the Lord. Well, he said, I oh, man, he does, but he said, I said, is he a member of this church? He said, Yeah, but he doesn't come very much. He'll come maybe once on Sunday. Every once in a while he'll be here on Sunday night, but not very often. Uh, if anything else going on, he's off. Oh, I've mistaken him. I thought he was a spiritual man. He had the air. He looked like it at first glimpse. But the photograph reveals that one who is yielded to the Holy Spirit will have a faithfulness about him. And then on that. But hang on to your seat. You may have fared all right to this point, but look at the last statement: temperance. That doesn't mean abs- simply abstinence from liquor. That means self-control, control of our drives, of our desires of our ambitions, of our emotions, holding that appetite in where it ought to be. That's self-control. We think about that and we find then a picture of a man or woman who is spiritual. So Paul said, you that are endeavoring to yield your life to the Holy Spirit, you that are being led of the Spirit. You that indeed are saying yes to Him in your life and letting Him produce that fruit within you. And I suppose Paul had a reason to apply, uh, to appeal to the spiritual. For it's only the spiritual man who will do what he calls for to be done about a sinning brother. He said, if that man is overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual do what? Get on the telephone." first chance you get and call somebody and say, hey, have you heard? Did you know what old so-and-so did? Do you know where I sold? I never thought it I never believed it in my life. Yep, yep, yep. Spiritual? Not so. But he said, restore him in the spirit of meekness. Now that word restore is very interesting. You'll find the same word, though it's translated. Uh, with a little different shade of meaning in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21, and translated from the Greek language in that verse, and here's what the how it is rendered there. And rightly so. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were sitting beside the seashore, and the Bible said in chapter 4 and Matthew, verse 21, Men. And if you read the same verse here in Galatians 6 and verse 1, and you'd come to, the, in that language of the Greeks, you'd come to the same word, and you'd find it's the same word, but here in the right setting and rightly rendered, restore has the same meaning, but it gives you a little different light. That's what James and John were doing over there beside the shore. The fishermen were restoring their nets. They were mending their nets. And that word is the word of the fisherman. Ah, when the fisherman invested money, owned double money in that net. And now he goes out here and by some freakish accident, he ripped a hole in his net. What did you think of that fella? If when you walked up to him and you'd say, hey, what's wrong with your net? Oh, I threw it out there in the the bay and, and I started dragging it in, came over an old jutting rock and it ripped. And I'm going to throw it away. Well, you'd say, man, what in the world is wrong with you? Throw that expensive net away when all you have to do is just mend that old torn place in the net. That's what a fisherman would do. And the Lord said, when you find a brother whose life is not fulfilling its purpose because of sin, when you find him falling by the wayside, when you find his life not bringing in fruit and glorifying God as a result of that fault or that sin of that failure in his life, instead of getting on the telephone and running him down, and instead of throwing him away, why Paul said, restore him. Restore him. Put him back in workable order. Every man who's lost in the front line of battle makes the army the weaker. And every child of God lost to the service of God by reason of failure and sin in his life makes the army of God the weaker. So every child of God is important. Oh, you say, I'd be better off at that old ornery thing. Yeah, for a moment you will. But the Lord said he's mine. Don't throw him out. Don't cast him out of your mind and cut him off from your heart of love. But restore him. So he said, Restore such an one in the spirit of me. Now, the word restore is also a medical term. It's got kind of a word that you would find related to what a doctor would do if you were to go into his office and you, by accident, have had your arm jerked out of joint. Paul is saying, "What a brother who is a member of the body of Christ, by freakish accident or failure in his life, has now been jerked out of joint, don't Cut his arm off, but just put it back in joint. What do you think of a doctor if your arm was out of joint and you went and he said, Hey, oh, we checked your arm's out of joint, so it, uh, there's only one thing for me to do, and that's just to abtate your arm. One fellow came to the doctor and he had a bad leg. The doctor said, Well, I'm sorry, my friend. said, We're going to have to abtate your leg. And the man said, Well, thank God. He said, That's not as bad as cutting it off, is it? <laughs> and yet that's exactly what we do in a lot of cases of men and women who have sin or, or they've crossed us. And they've wronged us. And they were wrong in what they did. But we have that attitude of heart. I just won't have anything else to do with you. I just won't, I just won't speak to you. I won't have anything to do with you. We cut them off. He said, restore it. Now, and I've got to close with this. his time's up, watch this. A dislocated arm from the body is a perfect picture of a backslidden Christmas. Dislocated arm is disobedient to the head. The Bible teaches that we're members of the body of Christ, but he's the head. Is that right or wrong? Hmm? Come on, do it like that. That same guy nodding again, but I can't get him back up. All right? Now, the the whole story is, he's the head, we're the body. It is from my head, my brain, that comes all the impulses that control my body. My brain sends down an impulse, pick up that Bible. I obey because I'm in joint and I pick up the load and the burden and the weight of that Bible. No trouble. But if my arm's out of joint, my head can send the most urgent appeal and the most urgent message. Lift that load. Pick it up. Do it. I would not obey for the simple reason I'm out of fellowship with the Bible the reason many a man and woman obeys not the commission of our Lord to proclaim the gospel of every creature, he's a dislocated arm. The reason many a Christian doesn't tithe and bring the Lord's tithes and offer in the house of God is because he's out of fellowship with the body. He is a dislocated arm and he doesn't obey the words of the head of that body. I could go on and on. Prayer life, Bible study, witnessing, giving, so forth. But let me move on. It's disobedient. None of that, but an arm dislocated is painful. If you ever had anything jerked out of joint, but I'll guarantee you'll agree with that. It's painful. And I don't know anybody that hurts anymore if he's really saved than the man who's saved who gets out of touch with God. Now, I don't know how you are, but I know that because I've experienced most miserable times in my life been when I've been rebellious and stubborn and disobedient, and sinful. I get miserable, hurt and inside, and all the pain that the child of God experiences when he gets out of touch with God. If you don't believe that, you look at uh, you look at old King David. But he got of touch with God, read the 53rd Psalm. As he confesses his sin, he talks about the guilt of it all and how his heart is away from God, how his bones are aching, how his whole body is in pain. He's out of touch with God. Not only that, but a dislocated arm attracts attention to itself. If I came in this church tonight and I had on a $500 suit, then it probably burn me up. If I had on a $500 pair of shoes, if I had on a $1,000 necktie, if I had royal crown hairdressing on my head and my arm up in the slant, do you know what you would notice about me? My arm. And you'd say, I wonder what happened to the preacher. Well, I wonder, wonder if he fell down today and broke his arm. You know what you'd be doing? You would be looking, at that arm that's just not acting like it ought to act. Something out of place. That child of God laying up tonight on Sunday night at house at his house or watching television instead of being in the house of God, I'll guarantee you the devil's crowd said, Ha-ha, look yonder. Wonder what happened to him. Look at that fellow running around his lip, bottom lip all pooched out mad at the preacher and mad at the deacons, mad at the school teachers, mad at the church. And he calls himself a Christian and the devil said, Look at that. You see that? I wonder what's wrong with him. You know what the whole story is? The world will look at the out of fellowship Christian and they'll judge the body of Christ by that one member who's out of fellowship and not only that, but they'll be looking at that backslidden out of fellowship Christian and not be looking on the head, the glorified Son of God. Do you see what I'm saying? You all with me? Do that if you will. If you don't, I'm going to start all over. Uh-huh. I, uh-huh. I knew you would Then notice something else Now I've got to close A dislocated arm like a backslidden Christian is sensitive Boy you talk about a man that's touchy That's a fella that's out of touch with God You can do any little thing And he'll get offended You can stand over here and talk And you know what that out of fellowship Christian will be thinking He'll be thinking you talking about him and the preacher can get up and preach and he can point his finger out like he normally does and preach and say something. You know what that out of fellowship Christian will think? Uh huh. He's just taking advantage of me. He's talking to me. I know he is. I know he is. Somebody's told him about me, and he's just reading my title clear. Sensitive, huh? Do you know how to keep from being sensitive? Die. Just be dead. I'm talking i I'm talking about what Paul said. I die daily. Did you know you can't offend a dead man? Cuss him, spit in his face, call him a hypocrite, tell him he's a liar, tell him he's the biggest farce to ever walk to the face of the earth. Do anything you want to, and he'll never bite. Buy, buy, buy he'll never bat an eyelash. You'll not offend him. Why? He's dead. And Paul said, my life is dead. I, my life is hidden with Christ and God. I buried myself in Christ. It ought not to be sensitivity in the carnal sphere of life, but in the spiritual. Sensitive to what God says. Sensitive to His Word. Ready to respond when He reminds us of wrong and sin. Sensitive we become when we're out of fellowship with God. Paul said, restore Him in the spirit of meekness. How are you going to do that? Consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. You know what he's saying? Look at yourself real good. How long, Vincent, you checked yourself out in that spiritual mirror? Have you ever heard anybody say this when they learned of some wrong in the life of a Christian? You ever heard that, uh, ever heard that proud, arrogant response? I'll tell you right now, I may do a lot of things, but I'd never do that. Baloney. Let me say it in the mountain lake. You're full of mud. You've got a nature in you that's as mean and low down as anybody else. And I'm going to tell you something else that's going to humiliate you. Whether you knew it or not, you are capable of doing anything anybody else has done that's dirty and underhanded and deceptive and wicked. You're as capable of that as anybody else. And Paul said... If we think we're something when we're nothing, we deceive ourselves. We're leading ourselves astray and leaving ourselves wide open for the tackle of the devil and the defeat in our own life. So, if you want to have meekness when you deal with someone who's wronged you or gone wrong, you look at yourself real good. and when, Before you jump with all four feet on that fella and really dress him down, And really, I mean, just really scald him good. You consider what you are. And the fact that only for the grace of God, you'd have been in the same fix or even worse. Now, I'm going to tell you, honey child, you'll act a lot differently when you really learn what you are yourself. And when you find somebody falling in sin instead of you getting angry and jumping down their throat and telling them they knew better than that and you ought to known better than to do this, that, and the other and scald them real good, listen, I'll guarantee your heart will be broken because you'll understand and say, so I want you to know I love you and I know you've been hurt down inside but I want you to know too the Lord will forgive you for the wrong in your life and restore you to his fellowship. That's all I'm going to say tonight. Let's bow our heads for prayer.